Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello, I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring the Flickr filter model of consciousness. With me is Professor Iman Sparus, who is Professor of Psychology at King's University College at Western University Canada in London, Ontario, where he's been teaching courses on consciousness for more than 30 years. He is also author of Authentic Knowing, The Convergence of Science and Spiritual Aspiration, and Alterations of Consciousness, an Empirical Analysis for Social Scientists. Most recently, he is co-author with Julia Mossbridge, who has been a recent guest on the New Thinking Aloud channel, of an important book published by the American Psychological Association called Transcendent Mind, Rethinking the Science of Consciousness. This interview is being conducted over the internet, so now I'm going to switch over to the Skype video. Welcome, Imans. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, I you know, want to congratulate you once again on getting the American Psychological Association to publish uh, the book you co-authored with Julia Mossbridge, Transcendent Mind. And, and for me, the highlight of, of that book really is your Flickr filter model of consciousness. So I know we're going to be focusing in on that, but it takes a while to sort of... Uh, create the context for it, but perhaps you could just summarize the theory in in a few words, and then we'll um, dance around it, so to speak. Sure. Well, thanks, Jeffrey. I, I really appreciate you interviewing me. I've always really uh, liked your work, and, and, I, and I think it's a real service that you that you do for the uh, consciousness community to be able to do these interviews and to make them available to people so that people can actually know what it is that we do. So I think that uh, that's a real tribute to you that you've been able to do this for all these years. And I have used your the original Thinking Aloud series, for example. I've used it in my classrooms as well. So so it's uh, it's good to be here. Well, thank you. It's a real pleasure to be with you as as well. I've naturally I've been aware of your work for a long time, and uh, you've been teaching consciousness now for over thirty years. So uh, you're really one of the important pioneers in the field, and and I do think your book Transcendent Mind is a real landmark. Well, we we hope so. I mean, we were trying to sort of put down. Um, an anchor or to create kind of a, 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 yeah, I don't know what other word would work as well as anchor. Like basically put down an anchor at a particular place so that, so that you've actually made some headway. Mm-hmm. Uh, because otherwise it's just, you're always sort of starting from zero, right? And, and the flicker filter model that we'll be talking about really yeah, uh, is something of an anchor in that regard because it it offers researchers a, a whole new way of looking at consciousness. 
I think, um, uh, first of all, it's not really that unique if you look at what other people have done. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's sort of another variation on a theme that's been arising frequently, I think, in the last 100 years or so. Um so basically, just to summarize the model, if you're going to move away from materialism, then the question arises, well, what? how are we going to explain things? Like, what kind of explanatory schemes will we have for that? And I think that's been one of the charges that's been made. Well, there aren't any. There aren't any. Therefore, you know, you've got nothing. There, there's, you have to stick with materialism because nothing, no, there are no alternatives. Yeah, Almost by <laughs> definition, it, uh, I think, from the materialist point of view, if it's not material, then it's not science. Well, yeah, that's a conflation of two completely different things. Materialism is a theory, and science is a way of acquiring knowledge. So, mm-hmm. And in fact, it's science that has undermined materialism. Yeah. So, <laughs> but it basically put it out of commission. Um, so there are two ingredients in the flicker filter theory. Uh, the first of those is the notion of the flicker. And this isn't really, you know, a novel idea. People have proposed this idea in the past, more or less jokingly, though, that maybe the universe turns itself on and off all the time. But when Julie and I started looking carefully at Julian Barbour's theory of time, he has a theory uh, whereby time consists of sequences of nows, and those nows sit in a big pile somewhere, and then they come down out of that pile in some kind of order that's determined by some sort of probability density function or whatever. And so that kind of went along with ideas that I already had from looking at the measurement problem in quantum mechanics. And there are um, theorems in quantum mechanics, basically, that say that if you, if you continuously observe a system, it won't change. So that means that you have to release your observation in effect. Then the question is, well, how does that translate over to ordinary life? I mean, we're not talking here about making formal experimental observations in physics. We're talking about everyday life. And so it seemed to me that, that sort of to cut a long story short, that the way that that could happen is if the universe itself kept turning on and off. And, and so then you've got this idea of these successions of nows that sort of show up and disappear, show up and disappear. It, it seems as if you're applying the principle of, of the quantum uh, to time. You're talking about, in effect, quantums of time. Yes, and there is a uh, there is something called Planck time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and within the time span of Planck time, time cannot be distinguished. And, and so in one, one of my papers, I proposed the idea that maybe the universe turns itself on and off once per Planck time. Mm-hmm. So in other words, that it is quantized. Time is quantized. And then there's sort of a, a space in between the uh, quantums. Well, yeah, who knows? <laughs> I mean, who knows what that means, right? Yeah. Because once you get away from the idea of sort of this linearly ordered time, that as we experience it, both uh, clock time and subjective time, um, then then it then you have then basically everything is up for grabs again. Mm-hmm. You know. 
then then you have to try to figure it all out and that's challenging and it's interesting and julie and i had a lot of fun with it yeah but essentially the flicker part of the flicker filter model is is the idea that the universe recreates itself uh instant by instant right that's that's exactly it mm-hmm. and 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 notice notice one of the first consequences why should it recreate itself the way it already was and that's where the theory of meaning fields comes in that uh, which isn't in the book, by the way. I developed those after writing the book. But mm-hmm. um, the idea that there are these fields that hold the patterns of what is going to happen. And that has powerful implications because if you start thinking that we can switch between meaning fields, then that means that you can switch what happens in physical reality um, from now to now. Mm-hmm. And so let's talk about for the uh, filter aspect of the flicker filter model. The filter is perhaps better known in the literature in that the, the idea is very simple, that maybe the brain somehow is not the source of consciousness, but maybe all it's doing is it's a channel or a relay station or almost like a block or a filter or some kind of device that attenuates and constricts and restricts consciousness itself. Mm-hmm. And that consciousness is not primarily or fundamentally of the brain. It works through the brain, but that's not where it comes from, and that's not its primary identity. So the notion now is that there is some kind of deep consciousness or some kind of pre-physical substrate or some kind of realm uh, in which ordinary time does not function, ordinary space does not function, the ordinary rules of physics as we understand them don't function. And that pre-physical substrate is the sort of the, the source for where the nows come from and and the sort of all the filtering that goes on and bringing whatever is in that deep space into physical manifestation. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. So now we've, we've summarized uh, <laughs> the, the Flickr filter model, but I think it's important to uh, review for the benefit of our viewers some of the problems that you've identified with the whole notion of either materialism or or physicalism and in in your book you do a very elegant job of that starting with the the, the whole history of uh, the idea of materialism um well thank you jeffrey i appreciate that you feel that it was it was a convincing argument <laughs> um the uh, I've had a lot of practice at it. Um, I have uh, years ago there I published the philosophy paper, some fundamental problems with a materialist interpretation of reality. So I've been at this for a long time um, and have carefully reviewed all of the arguments for and against materialism and have had these arguments with materialists of various sorts for decades. So I understand the arguments very well. Uh, moving in both directions, uh, which I think allows me to sort of try to more succinctly summarize everything. And then um, Julia was relentless in forcing me to to clarify everything as mm-hmm. well. So 
uh, I mean, that was it was very, very important uh, in terms of uh, moving forward some kind of lucid sort of analysis of materialism. Yeah, you you begin by talking about how at one time in history, and I think many people today still imagine uh, materialism sort of uh, use, using the metaphor of billiard balls, that atoms well, that, and molecules are like billiard balls. That was the that was explicitly a model that was developed in, historically in the Western intellectual tradition. And so not only do we carry that forward in the Western intellectual tradition, but as we know, you know, as psychologists, we realize that people use schemata for organizing the way in which they understand reality. So, you know, when we think bird, we don't think, you know, of the genetic makeup of birds. We just have a prototype of a robin in our heads, and then we just compare what comes along to the robin and go like, well, that's not a bird because it doesn't look like a robin. So that's how we reason, right? We use all these reasoning heuristics. We don't actually think things through ordinarily. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. you need philosophers, you know, philosophers do that. They sit down and think things through and then nobody can understand what they said because it becomes so complicated. Yeah. So I think one of the things that happens, and there's almost no research on this. One of my thesis students looked at it a little bit, uh, is that we tend to use a billiard ball schema for organizing reality. So when we think about something, is that real? We we think, well, everything is like billiard balls sort of banging into one another and kind of moving backward and forward in time in some kind of deterministic way. And if it doesn't fit that, then we go, well, obviously that can't happen. (laughs) So it's like, so, you know, you say, well, the survival hypothesis, is it possible for, for there to be the continuation of consciousness after death, physical death? Well, that's, that's an open question. That's a scientific question. You know, then you say, well, what methodology are we going to use for answering that question? But if you've already got this schemata that, you know, everything is bumping billiard balls, you go, well, wait a minute, the billiard balls stop bumping, there's nothing happening. Yeah. And so you don't even think that there's any point in investigating that because your, your schema doesn't allow that. Your schema already precludes the idea that consciousness could survive death because there's just bumping billiard balls. And mm-hmm. how does that, how does that have, what does that have to do with bumping billiard balls? There's nothing there. You know and, and, and the irony is, of course, we know today in physics that fundamental particles are nothing like billiard balls. Oh, goodness. No, we have no idea what they are. I mean, that's, yeah. that's one of the famous quotations for Richard Feynman. Like, if you think that you're going to use your ideas about how reality works at this level for understanding, um, quantum phenomena, then, you know, you are, you're, you're simply going to miss it. Mm. You're going to miss it. People today, and I've interviewed some, uh, have, have often said, well, uh, I'm no, no longer a materialist. I'm a physicalist, uh, as if that, uh, provides a, a more sophisticated response. And you really torn that argument into shreds. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing there. I mean, what, what does that mean? Yeah. Like I'm a physical, what does that mean even? Like, you know, uh, one, one version of that is, well, it means whatever physicists say reality is like, but they obviously haven't talked to very many physicists because when you go in the physics community, the physicists who do theoretical physics don't agree with one another. Mm-hmm. So what, what kind of version of reality is that? What does that mean then? Mm-hmm. And so usually what happens is that people default back to their schemata. Like they think, oh, physicists must think that the universe is like bumping billiard balls. And therefore, I'm going to say that the universe is physical in nature. But of course, the physicists don't think that. And so 
and 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 trying to track what they think and where they're going with it. I mean, the other thing, which and this isn't even, I mean, this is it's funny, but it also happens uh, regularly. It, that when you ask um, a, a theoretical physicist, somebody who does uh, quantum field theory, for example, um, so what? does this mean like what does this tell us about the universe and they they laughed oh don't oh no no i don't i don't say anything about that i don't i don't know anything about that um shut up and calculate and that's the that's basically the attitude you can either do the mathematics which is what you do and that's your that's your livelihood you do the mathematics and you just go along with it uh or you try to think about it if you think about it most people who think about it don't understand the mathematics and so they're thinking about it, but how are you going to think about it? You're going to think about it using analogies, but the, the waves, the particles, those analogies, all of those anal- analogies fail. Mm-hmm. And so, so what is it? We don't know. It's mysterious. It's something really weird. <laughs> On top of that, you have a number of physicists who are uh, starting with people like Max Planck, one of the founders of quantum mechanics, who suggested that consciousness itself is fundamental. Well, exactly. So it's just a question of which physicist you're going to listen to. Uh-huh. And you listen to the right ones, and they'll tell you that there's nothing down there, that it's all mind. Yeah. So you, you've argued, actually, that physicalism could be another way of uh, sneaking uh, mentalism or idealism into the metaphysical picture. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Without knowing it. So yeah. it's just it's just kind of fun watching people do that. It's, mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing that you address, uh, after having sort of shredded the whole edifice of materialism or physicalism, you, you begin to look at time itself and our understanding of time. When Julie and I first got together, uh, like she has a background in doing research on time. And I had been thinking about time for years that I really needed to sit down and think about it. I hadn't thought about it. I thought about thinking about it. And so we decided to write a paper about time, and that became chapter three of the book. And we decided, okay, let's just do a whole book then. Mm-hmm. But, but that was the um, – that was – I feel that in the whole book, in a way, that is really our sort of scholarly contribution there is in that particular chapter. And so what we did was we looked at time in physics, uh, both in relativity theory quantum and quantum theories – uh, we looked at the neuroscience of time. We looked at the phenomenology of time. We looked at all the uh, anomalous phenomena around time, mm-hmm. the uh, presentiment studies, those kinds of things, um, uh, precognitive dreams. Uh, we looked at um, time in altered states, time under the influence of psychedelic drugs, time... Um, and time as it's experienced by people who've had a near-death experience. And um, one of the – so just to give you an example of the kind of thing that we're talking about, uh, sometimes after somebody's had a near-death experience, um, they will be sitting somewhere just minding their own business, doing something. And, and one of my former students actually told me of this experience as well. So it's it's in the literature, and I've also heard – first-hand or second-hand or whatever that would be uh, from my students of having had this experience. So you're sitting somewhere, minding your own business, doing whatever it is you're doing with other people, and uh, at the same time, you're now living your life forward. And you're living your life forward for 
two, three, four months into the future. And you're still sitting there talking to people, and all of this maybe takes about 10 minutes of your time. And then you go, whoa, that was crazy. What was that? And then when you get further on in your life, a couple of months later, this whole scenario that you already lived out starts up, and you live it out. Mm -hmm. That is completely crazy. I mean, that is – that does not fit a, you know, linear beats on a string version of time in any in any kind of sense. Um, so taking into account those types of anomalous experiences, taking into account what happens during life reviews and near-death experiences, as well as all the neuroscience, the, the phenomenology, the what, what people in physics say and so on. So that, that's how we sort of sort of churned everything over and, and and decided that maybe Julian Barbour had the kind of the, the closest closest sense of what time might be like, mm-hmm. which is the I, this notion that there is only the present, there are only nows. These nows are organized in some kind of way at some deep level, and uh, and then it's a question of well, how does that organization occur, and you know what are the opportunities for manipulating it, and so on. I think it's useful to point out that what you've done here in in a book published by the American Psychological Association is you're introducing a wide range of empirical studies that were pretty much considered taboo in the psychological community. And and you've argued uh, that this crumbling edifice of materialism is the reason why that taboo exists, and it ought not to. Precisely, Jeffrey. When you look at the history of psychology, uh, in the late 19th century, psychology included all of these interesting aspects. I mean, they talked about hypnosis, they talked about multiple personalities, they talked about mediumship, uh, they talked about the survival of consciousness after death. They were interested in everything across the board. And in the early 1900s, all of the anomalous phenomena got chopped out of psychology and it was just left kind of like this, this sort of naked, sort of ratty little skeleton. And that, that was, that was it. And I think that what Julie and I are doing really is nothing other than re-establishing what psychology was in the first place. Mm-hmm. That there is a range of phenomena that are of interest when you look at the human psyche and this is the subject matter for psychologists, and there is a great deal of material now about it, anomalous and not anomalous, and that we should look at all of it and consider all of it when we try to understand the psyche and understand what consciousness is. Yeah, it seems as if uh, psychologists are, uh, in effect, handicapping themselves by uh, studiously ignoring a vast body of data uh, with direct relevance to the subject that they purport to study. Exactly, Jeffrey. Exactly. Yeah. Well said. <laughs> well, I think, I think you've and Julia have done a fabulous job of, of reviewing all of that literature and in, in particular precognition because, uh, it strikes right at the very heart of important questions relating to the nature of time, the nature of causality, the nature of free will. Yes, definitely. And, and this is where the, 
sort of uh, where we get to the flicker filter theory because mm-hmm. you say, okay, well, we can explain how you have okay, how you can have precognition, but we can also show you how you can then change reality so that what you just saw is going to happen isn't going to happen anymore. So you're in in this sort of very odd, ironic situation where, uh, in my case, for example, I uh, as a uh, PhD student, uh, I started to establish the fact that some of my dreams were precognitive. And it takes a long time. I mean, you have to, you know, you write the dream down, you say, this is what the dream says, this is what it predicts will happen. And then you check, did it happen? Or did it not happen? And, and you know, it can take 10, 15, 20 years to say, okay, I think this is actually working. <laughs> mm-hmm. Then when you get that far, you go, okay, but I don't like that outcome. Like, I really don't want that. So then you say, okay, so how can I change it? So then you find ways to change it. And so now it's like you're no longer demonstrating precognition anymore because because you've anticipated what is going to happen and now you've decided you don't want it and you change it. And so what happens in reality is not what you saw in mm-hmm. the first place. And mm-hmm. so ironically, um, ironically, you know, you're using precognition in order to in some sense, I guess in a narrow sense, invalidated. <laughs> <laughs> right. It raises all kinds of uh, potential logical paradoxes. Yes. Yes. I mean, the way we, one way to think about it, um, uh, one of the things that happened with uh, the special theory of relativity was the spatialization of time. The time was added as a fourth dimension along with the spatial dimensions. If you do that and you regard the universe as being deterministic, then you get a block universe. So basically, everything that ever happened, anything that ever will happen, um, is already um, already said and done, and it all it's all like sits in a big block. Mm-hmm. So it's a block universe. But one, but a way to sort of free yourself from the determinism of that is to say, well, what if we switch between block universes? So we're switching out of that universe in which this precognitive dream showed me that, you know, I was going to have a car accident or whatever and move into a universe where that's not happening anymore. Mm-hmm. And so, so the idea here is that you can sort of have these sort of outdated notions of the way in which you think time works in these block universes and use them to think in creative ways that maybe what you're doing is you're actually moving between these. Maybe you're, maybe you're somehow you have the ability to negotiate uh, reality. Mm-hmm. Well, and the, the flicker filter model allows not only for precognition, but uh, as you point out in your book, it also allows for the possibility of psychokinesis and even uh, survival after death. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, the the um, I mean, once you're on the other side of the filter, consciousness consciousness sits on the other side of the filter ultimately. Mm-hmm. So, and you are simply an extrusion of that. And by consciousness, so, here here you, I think you mean a, a larger consciousness than our normal ego consciousness. Exactly. Yeah. And we at the beginning of the book we give four different definitions of consciousness. We're we're uh, dealing with that. Uh, subjective aspect of uh, that is sort of the core of what constitutes experience. And you sort of think of that as being sort of expanded or universalized somehow. Mm-hmm. And that that is the kind of consciousness we're talking about here. 
yeah, some kind of, and th- this is the sort of thing that um, that people would tap into during a transcendent state of consciousness, where they feel timelessness, spacelessness. They feel that they're they've been liberated from the usual constraints of reality, and and they feel um, completely expanded. And and in some cases, they they literally talk about being able to pop into time, into the time stream. Uh, where they choose, well, not necessarily maybe where they choose, but they they don't necessarily pop into it in a linear order mm-hmm. out of that deep consciousness, and th- we give some examples of that in the book. Mm. And you even, of course, draw upon a lot of conventional research about subjective time that that shows that uh, experiences sometimes appear to take longer or to take less time than one might measure by the clock. Oh yes. Time gets stretched, stretched, twisted, turned. It's um, it, it doesn't perfectly match across modalities. Um, one of the other things that we found very interesting: there's been considerable research trying to find time in the brain, and that has not happened yet. We do not know. There is no central time processor in the brain, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of interesting. Uh, and yet there is um, temporal binding. And so, um, and and this is just another variation of the binding problem. We don't know how the sensory modalities get bound, and we don't know how temporal temporality, especially across modalities, gets bound. Now, we, so, we, excuse me, we better define for our viewers the binding problem. I know uh, amongst researchers it's very important, but for the lay public, very few people have heard about the binding problem. Um, the Think about the way in which the senses process uh, stimuli that impinge on the physical body. So light hits the retina of the eye. Um, Longitudinal sound waves impact the eardrum. Um, You put your hand out and you touch the keyboard and, and there are corpuscles and so on in the fingers that relay uh, information up the spine into the brain. Um, and that's all over the place. I mean, this is a bit here, a bit there, a little something here, a little, you know, nonsense going on. I mean, even just think about the eyeball. I mean, it's filled with what? This murky fluid? You know, once you put light through a murky fluid, by the time it's gone through the murky fluid, it's just like all over the place. How do you ever see a vertical line? The only way you see a vertical line is because the brain reconstructs what that must have been and tells you, oh, that must be a vertical line. But the problem is that with all this murky, garbled stuff coming in all over the place, how is it that we experience a single unitary conscious experience? Mm -hmm. This is a mystery that no one has been able to solve. Because we have a hundred billion neurons uh, functioning in in the brain, all of them processing different kinds of information, and uh, there's no reason uh, on the surface that any of it should appear to be coherent. Yes, and uh, yeah, that's right. That that any of it should be coherent, that any of it should coalesce into a single unitary experience with qualia. And qualia means with with the sense of something going on, mm-hmm. uh, there, there's th- this is not. I mean, this is not a problem that anyone has solved. 
uh, and that's considered like the big problem amongst conventional neuroscientists is to understand how the brain is able to uh, organize all of these inputs into uh, what ultimately comes down to not only a coherent picture, but actually a narrative for people. Yes. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, it is, it is one of the big problems. Mm-hmm. And, and I know a lot of conventional neuroscientists seem to think, well, once we solve the binding problem, then, uh, we'll have a complete picture of consciousness. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. I think they're giving up on that, though generally one of the points you make in your book is that there's really a growing uh, consensus amongst neuroscientists and physical scientists and uh, biological scientists in general that uh, we're entering into a what you call a post-materialist uh, worldview. I think that, um, and, and I don't. I'm not trying to. I, I, I'm not in a position to make a really good assessment of this, but I think that increasingly neuroscientists are running out of gas. I mean, the, the computational program ran out of gas, which is why people have sort of defaulted back to the neuroscience position. The computational position, by the way, was that consciousness arises out of proper types of calculations. Yeah. And, and, and that gets away from some very obvious problems that, well, what if, you know, if you think you see red and it's this nerve cell doing it and you destroy the nerve cell, but you still see red, then, you know, obviously it's not that particular nerve cell. Well, then what is it? And so then you have the notion of functionalism or computationalism that what matters is not, um, is not which part of the brain is doing, but the fact that these calculations are being carried out. So then we had got into that whole computational sort of program that went on for quite a while. And then sort of that one, people just, couldn't make it work. So they kind of said, okay, well, we're not doing that anymore. Now we're doing neuroscience because we've actually got nerve cells in the brain. And, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, somehow those nerve cells through some kind of calculating process are producing experience. <laughs> yeah. So, so they're back to the old problems without the kind of the easy fix of, you know, computationalism. Mm-hmm. And, and the problem uh, is still is uh, they're left with what David Chalmers calls the hard problem of consciousness, which is how do you get qualia or actual experience, the subjective sense of I exist from uh, neurons? Yeah, exactly. So even if you could solve the binding problem, you still have the hard problem. Mm-hmm. And, and there's no, there's no, um, I mean, you just get these sort of hand-waving emergentist arguments that, well, this is just what this is just what it's like when you know enough neurons calculate things. <clears throat> but you don't know that. You don't have any evidence for that. You don't know if that's really what's happening mm-hmm. because you, can, you can't prove it. So it's just kind of there. There's these hand-waving arguments, and more and more people are just saying, "Well, look, I mean, I mean, the whole point." of discussing the physical world as the physical world was to remove any aspect or element of subjectivity or experience from it. So you've stripped it of anything that has anything to do with subjectivity. That is now going to be our objective world. Now you develop your physics and all the rest of it, and you learn how to do that really well. And now you say, oh, now we're going to put subjectivity back into it. Well, wait a minute. Hold on. Hold on. You just carefully stripped it of any possibility of subjectivity so that you could have your little objective world. 
So now you're going to put it back in? Well, how is it going to go in? Because you so carefully stripped it out. You can't. You can't put it back in. It's not just going to show up. And and this is the this is the big problem that that the physicalist theories consciousness is an embarrassment. Mm-hmm. Like it's, you know, the universe could perfectly well run in the dark, but it's not running in the dark because there's the light of consciousness. So why is it there? What's it doing there? How did it get there? What's creating it? Where's it coming from? What's and the the flicker filter model that you have. Uh, presupposes that consciousness was always there to begin with at some level. Right. So we, we sort of, we, we, we flipped the problem. I mean, we haven't, we haven't really solved anything. I mean, nobody can solve anything anyway, but we flipped the problem. Now it's like, okay, everything's made out of consciousness. So then you say, well, where did that come from? Well, I don't know. Uh, But at least (laughs) something, it's self-existent. It, it gives you a scientific model that lets you incorporate a vast body of data that is otherwise being swept under the rug. Yes, and that's the purpose of a model. It's not necessarily that it's a correct picture of reality. It's that it it has the best goodness of fit to the data. Mm-hmm. That's what you're always looking for. You're always looking for the theory with the best goodness of fit. And Julie and I say that, like at the end of the book – uh, that we're perfectly confident that someday our theory will be tossed out because somebody will realize that there is a much better explanation for what's going on. So that's all you're ever able to do is to come up with, you know, a theory with the best goodness of fit to empirical observation as a scientist. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I know, for example, um, you do deal extensively with psychokinesis in, in your book. That's a big interest of mine. And uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about how uh, psychokinesis or mind over matter uh, would work in the context of the Flickr filter model. Well, I think in the in the most dramatic case, um, and we give we give some examples from observations that have been made of Tomas, um, Brazilian uh, medium. Brazilian something or other. Um, <laughs> Studied extensively by my dear friend Lee Poulos. Lee Poulos is wonderful, yeah. So we have had some really good conversations with Lee. A fellow Canadian. And, yes, fellow Canadian. He's a clinical psychologist in Vancouver. Um, has studied uh, Tomas and uh, it was Gary Lockman, I believe, who was Richmond. the American. Gary Richman. Gary Richmond, sorry. Yeah, Gary Lockman is another uh, scholar of the esoteric who has been a frequent guest on this program, so I can understand the confusion. Um, who was a, uh, a photographer uh, mm-hmm. as well, as, you know, a journalist who uh, spent considerable time with uh, Tomas. Well, I think I think what's important, I think probably the the thing to say here is that Tomas was able to demonstrate, ostensibly demonstrate phenomena that do not make any sense in any kind of mechanical way. Um, so, for instance, somebody would, uh, he would cut a, okay, now, I'm not going to remember, it's a 500 queros, queros note? It's a, it's a basically... Uh, uh, a Brazilian currency. Brazilian currency, uh, yeah. paper. Brazilian paper currency. Um uh, cut it into four pieces, have the person, you know, not himself, but someone else hold it in his or her hand, do his raw thing, and and the person opens the, the hand and the 
the currency has been reconstituted, but in the wrong order. And and you think like, okay, well that didn't happen. But if you if you think, well, what if it did? Since people ostensibly are carrying these around with them, and it's been witnessed by credible witnesses, how would you explain it? And so, in the flicker filter theory, it's it's not an issue at all because you go to the deep state. You're going to the deep state constantly, anyway. The deep and state in, of consciousness. The deep state. So this would be deep consciousness, the pre-physical substrate. So yeah. basically when the universe is in the off position. So it's in the on, off, on, off, on, off. So when you're in the off position, you just go, well, let's just let's just pull out this now. So you pull the now off the shelf that has, you know, the currency, you know, put together in this weird order, and you plop that one down. That becomes your now. It, sug- so, it suggests almost a, a, a power of omniscience or omnipotence. Yes, yes, exactly. And this is... Um, I think this is very important because you sort of see this progression that people have made. Like they say, oh, well, you know what? It's not matter, it's energy. You know, everything is energy. And then they go, oh, well, you know what? You know what? It's not really energy that's that's doing it. It's information. It's the information that you're jiggling and that you're changing or something like that. Notice that that requires less effort. But then, like, I'm saying, well, we haven't gone far enough. You, we can actually go one more step, and that is that it's not information, it's meaning. And if you jiggle the meaning, in this case, you're switching switching out the meaning fields. And if you can jiggle the meaning, notice how little work is required. So in order to create these kinds of psychokinetic effects, like people sometimes think that you need to have this massive power of the mind and you're crunching things together and you're, and you're you know, creating all these pow- impact and powerful forces at some level. But maybe it's not like that at all. Maybe it's just as simple as you know, a tiny, tiny movement of the mind mm-hmm. and everything is completely different. And it's completely different because in the off, because you've figured out how you can create that change in the off position. Mm-hmm. And so you basically selected a different now. And so when the now comes down, it comes down with the, with the currency put back together in the wrong order. And everybody goes, well, how did that happen? Mm-hmm. Of course, people like Tomas uh, are extremely rare, and on top of being extremely rare, the things they do are so unbelievable that even an open-minded person may have a very hard time uh, integrating or digesting what they've just witnessed. That's right, yes. And of course, uh, I'm familiar with your investigation of Ted Owens, who was you know, one of these sort of charismatic figures who had these sorts of capabilities and just how unbelievable it is to imagine that anybody could have done the kinds of things that he did. Yeah. Um, so, so we talk about the boggle threshold in the book mm-hmm. and the, everybody has a boggle threshold. Yeah. And this is sort of the, the level of anomaly that they are willing to accept and no more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it could be like, well, yeah, maybe sometimes there is some telepathy, but that could be explained by some kind of electromagnetic waves that are moving out of the person's brain and the other brain. And then you go, okay, okay, fine, fine. I'm okay with that. Um, 
maybe, maybe sometimes somebody might be able to jiggle a rag, a, a random event generator, a tiny, tiny little bit. But it, it's inconsequential. It doesn't matter. It's not anything. It's like I don't know why it happens, but it might happen. But certainly, certainly, there are no aliens out there, and and there's no life after death, mm-hmm. and nobody can actually make make uh, eggs hatch and little chickens run around in in 17 minutes, and, like, which is something that Tomas was reported to have done. Yes, exactly. And yeah. so you've, you, like, so everybody has a boggle threshold. Mm-hmm. And, and then when you get to the point where, okay, I'm willing to accept this, but not this. And so once you actually realize that that's the process, uh, John Lilly used to talk about that, by the way, yeah. like he, in his, uh, Center of the Cyclone, mm-hmm. uh, where he says that is really the only restriction on what you can see in reality is what, what the limits of your own beliefs are. Mm-hmm. And so as you start to relinquish and release what you think is possible, what you, isn't, what you think isn't possible, you acknowledge that you have a boggle threshold. And what if you can go past that boggle threshold? What if you can imagine that something else might could occur? And then you start seeing even stranger things and even stranger sorts of things start happening. It's like the universe just comes apart. And this is why I feel like why I've sort of, been talking about this, my theory of meaning fields the meaning fields to hold it together because there's nothing left to hold anything together yeah. you know let me tell you a, a brief story that is relevant to this point uh, i remember some 30 40 years ago i had a copy of uh, the book by lee pulos with gary richmond about tomas i think it was called miracles and other realities and uh, yes. I, I was reading it to my mentor, Arthur M. Young, a theorist, a inventor of the Bell helicopter, and a man deeply involved in funding parapsychology yes. and studying alchemy and uh, totally open-minded. And I was reading a passage in which they were describing a, a session with Tomas in which there were metal folding chairs. And the, the big metal folding chair started uh, melting right in front of them. And, and not because it was hot or anything. Was, uh, and Arthur Young, one of the most open-minded people I ever knew, yelled at me. He says, stop, stop. He said, I can't take it anymore. <laughs> Yes, and this is why in Chapter 7, Julie and I spend so much time talking about um, how to incorporate subjectivity into the study of consciousness. And one of the really key aspects of that is the importance of Mm self-development, the importance of researchers um, transforming themselves so that they are capable of seeing things the way they are, they're capable of thinking logically. They're capable of neutralizing their biases as much as possible. They're capable of, of interacting with phenomena in a way that doesn't skew, twist, and negate and, and nullify the kinds of things that they're actually looking at or that they're investigating. And, and I think that is a really, really core aspect, something that I, I emphasize with my students the core aspect of being a good scientist is self-development, learning how to develop yourself so that you can encounter phenomena, learn from them, document them properly, uh, relay all of that to the scientific community and through the proper channels so that we can sort of move our understanding of consciousness and reality forward. 
You, you point out that psychology was originally based on the methodology of introspection, and then that was abandoned with the development of behaviorism, and now you, you talk about the need for a, a new type of introspection in psychology. I'm not sure if it's new. Um, um, it might actually be you, quite ancient. I know, I know, exactly. I mean, it's, uh, well, okay, there are two, two aspects to this. One is that I think that uh, understanding introspection and introspective techniques already depends upon a particular theory of mind that we have. Right, and our theories of mind might be wrong. Mm-hmm. This is something that's been going, making the rounds lately in cognitive psychology and so on. The whole notion of theory of mind and how people use theory of mind for interacting with other people. So our ideas about introspection are probably badly flawed anyway. And so if you start and you go, okay, let me introspect, and you go, well, what am I doing anyway? <laughs> like, yeah. what am I supposed to be doing? What am I trying to do? What am I? How how can I look at myself? I mean, I think that this is why sort of behaviorism took over because it's it's difficult. It's not easy to do. It's not that people couldn't do it. It's just that it was difficult to do, and some people just there were other things they wanted to look at and think about, and so they just pushed forward that agenda, which I think is perfectly legitimate. So that's the one part. The other part, which which brings the anomalous ingredients and aspects back in, is the part part of shared mind that you can get to a point where you can actually experience what the other person is experiencing. You can tell what their experience is, and so you're you're sharing in that shared mind with another person. There is, I don't know if this is just a myth, an urban myth, or whether this was something that he was thinking of. Of course, we talk about Sigmund Freud a little bit in Chapter 2 and his ambivalent um, ambivalence towards telepathy. That the whole psychoanalytic method of tracking the person's unconscious actually involved such clairvoyant ability or telepathic ability. That that was actually at the heart of it. That's what you're doing while the person is looking at the ceiling, which is an ambiguous stimulus, and talking about whatever is happening in her in her mind. You're tracking the movement of the unconscious, and you're tracking it through sort of sharing the experience that the person is having directly. Um, so I think that, and we didn't get into that at all in the book because that's a little. There were lots of things we had to leave out because they were. They would have gone a little past most people's boggle thresholds. And, and, and that was Freud's issue also, that that he was aware of uh, telepathy and its role, but he felt that if he was too open and public about it, that it, it would have uh, destroyed this young movement of psychoanalysis. Yeah, yeah exactly. He was, he was very protective of, of, you know, what the, the, the sort of the, the uh, institutionalization of his way of thinking about the psyche that he was trying to create. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think, I think that, but I think that that is where the the, the frontier lies is in individuals introspecting and understanding what it is that they are finding, and that we become we become the instruments, we become the microscopes, the telescopes, mm-hmm. we become the we become the observers, and th- now you get back to Charlie Tart's state specific science. It's that that 
what you're doing is you have investigators that could agree on what it is that they found or disagree on what it is that they found or or you know bringing back information for the remainder of the scientific community from their own investigations or explorations. Mm-hmm. Well, you seem to be suggesting that the very process of introspection is akin to the process of uh, telepathy in some way, reading the mind of another person. Uh, I've written a new book, and I get into this a little bit in Chapter 5. And one of the things I wonder about is whether our own view of the mind, the way we look at our own mind, is actually the same as what we do when we're doing remote viewing. Mm-hmm. In other words, you, you can't look at your own mind because you are your own mind, you are the subject, but what if, what if you're using your capacity for telepathy or clairvoyance to look at your own mind? And that that's actually what's involved in successful introspection. That's a fascinating suggestion. I can't wait to uh, read your new book. <laughs> Well, yes, as soon as we can get it published by someone. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to do a, a, another whole interview just on, on that very thought because uh, it seems uh, extremely provocative and potentially groundbreaking. See, what's happened historically is that nobody's really taken non-local minds seriously. Um, because everybody's so attached to the materialist version of reality and sort of the skull-encased notion of consciousness. Once you break it open and you say, okay, non-local phenomena exist, then all of these kinds of permutations become apparent to you. And you go, well, is that happening? Like, is that happening? Can I actually remote view my own mind? That, that That's one of the, you know possibilities and and we and and in terms of you know the regs like wait a minute if the person sitting in front of us affecting it well so is the researcher well so is the person reading the paper about this later so we're talking about a random event generator now random event generator we've been i've had students in my lab working playing with the random event generator we've got some very interesting results um and like who's who's influencing it Discarded entities could be influencing it. In fact, we did a study, uh, Experiment 3 Plus, in which we, we sat, uh, we basically said, okay, we're not going to try to influence it. Discarded entities, you do it. <laughs> so, so now, now you, you see this is starting to squish into ITC, instrumental transcommunication, oh, the notion that, yeah. the notion that, it, you know, discarded entities could influence electronic devices. So where does, a, a, you know, where does a psychokinesis experiment end and an ITC experiment begin? Mm-hmm. They blur, That's especially a, it's when a huge one, problem. One of the participants in experiment three, in fact, what she did was at one point she just went fine. Like she's a Reiki healer, so she goes fine. Um, I'll just use my healing masters to to move this thing. Why am I doing it? Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and and the argument that some people make is is that these discarnate entities are like psychological props that individuals use because they don't want to have to feel at the ego level responsible for producing psychokinesis. So they, if you say, "Oh, I've got a spirit guide or an ancestor or a deity or some some other entity," then then the psychokinetic events can happen, and you you don't have to feel personally responsible. I'm sure a lot of that goes on, yeah. but 
that doesn't rule out the fact that there could be other. Well, this, this is the amazing people. thing that you're, you've written a book published by the American Psychological Association in which you seriously look at the question, are discarnate entities real? Can, are there ways that we can model that scientifically? Yes. Yes. We, we did that. Yeah. <laughs> it was and, a lot of fun. <laughs> and, and, and you're suggesting that the flicker filter model does allow for discarnate entities. Of course, mm-hmm. yes. Um, we might need to um, flesh out the model a little bit by having multiple layers, for example, mm-hmm. so that you could go to a layer where you have discarded entities, but it's not a deep consciousness. Okay. Yeah. You can also have entities in deep consciousness. Uh, uh, yeah, I was. I, uh, there's a paper by Federico Fagin uh, where he talks about, he says physical reality is the a byproduct of the communication of entities we can't see. Mm-hmm. So it's like, <laughs> well, I, I just have to commend you because you're willing to take such a, a bold look at the data. And at the same time, you're very careful to, uh, develop models that are grounded in uh, the empirical database of psychology, uh, neurology, and uh, e- even physics and mathematics. So it's uh, very, very important work uh, that you're doing, Imans. Thank you. I do my best. <laughs> you, you're doing an excellent job, and I look forward to the possibility of having future discussions with you, because I know we're just scratching the surface right now. On, Let's do it, Jeffrey. On very Let's comprehensive work. Thank you so much for being with me. It was fun. Yeah. I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm.